Can I say this? The podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. Hello all and welcome to the podcast by the Dundee Students Free Speech Society. We are a group of students from the University of Dundee who wish to promote free speech and healthy debates and civilized exchange of ideas within the University of Dundee. We started our activity a couple of weeks ago with a very exciting event about free speech with Inayman, a free speech activist here in the UK. But unfortunately, the recording of that event didn't work very well. So we come to you with our second event, which had a very exciting guest, Peter Hitchens, to talk to us about lockdown and the way the British government is handling the pandemic. Um, and this was a very exciting event with many, many people um, coming to the event itself. And it was very exciting to organize this. But for now, I'll just shut up and leave you with Richard to introduce you to Peter Hitchens. Thank you, everyone, very much for coming on tonight. Uh, we have a very exciting talk on our hands. Um, I'll start just by breaking down the event structure um, and then we'll just get right into the talk. Um, so, of course, we'll start first with the talk uh, and that, that should last uh, roughly 20 to 30 minutes. And then after that, everyone will have the opportunity to ask a question through the Q&A feature, uh, which should be up in the right hand side of your screen. When asking a question, we ask that you're polite and civil. Uh, if not, we'll simply leave it out. Uh, you have the option to ask questions anonymously and we will be recording this event and posting it on YouTube. So you may want to use that feature if you don't want to appear online. The Q&A will last for 30 minutes after the talk and uh, Andre, Ian and myself will be reading out the questions for Mr Hitchens to answer. Um, Peter Hitchens is a journalist and an author uh, who has worked as a foreign correspondent in Moscow and Washington alongside a variety of other countries across the globe and has written for The Spectator, The Guardian, First Things and The New Statesman uh, and has published nine books to date including The Abolition of Britain and The Rage Against God, not to mention his most recently published book Unconventional Wisdom. He's most well known as a polemicist often taking on unconventional views which have in some cases, particularly with universities, seen his platform to speak publicly being removed. He's outspoken on a wide range of issues, including, but not limited to, the war on drugs, the European Union, religion and God, and LGBTQ rights. Most recently, he's taken a strong critical stance on the way that the British government has handled the coronavirus pandemic, in particular its use of national lockdown and making mandatory the wearing of masks. The world's current state is entirely unprecedented and with the lack of an ability as a member of the public to meet in any large group in person and the lack of a parliamentary debate prior to the making of these policy decisions by the government, it's now of paramount importance that these measures being used are debated openly and freely without persecution or censorship as the potential consequences of the government's decisions have the uh, capacity for drastic economic and social effects that could take generations to recover from. It's with this intention that we host Peter Hitchens for a talk about the British government's response to COVID-19. So 
Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Peter. Uh, without further ado, uh, I'll pass it on to you. Sorry, I think you're uh, on mute, Peter, if you just unmute your mic. Am I audible now? Yep, there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, this is both a very simple and enormously important question. And it's one which not really affects us all now deeply and directly, will affect us all deeply and directly for many years to come. And it seems to me to be quite astonishing that it has been debated so little and accepted without question by so many people from the start. This is what disturbed me when towards the middle of March last year, I began to write critical articles suggesting that the country was taking a wrong direction. I had already sensed that there was some sort of hysteria in the air and I wasn't absolutely clear what direction it was taking, but I was I was extremely worried that what wasn't happening was a rational consideration of argument that almost everything that was presented about the approaching outbreak of COVID-19 uh, was being presented in such a way as to suggest that there was only one option, which was more or less to have a national panic. And this then led on to the extraordinary events on the evening of March the 23rd, when the Prime Minister went on television and declared pretty much by decree uh, that the country would henceforth be the sort of country where you could be confined to your home uh, by a legal force and the sort of country where public meetings were banned and also a country whose economy would be more or less completely shut down and whose society would be shut down as well. These were completely uh, astonishing to me because I had lived in the Soviet Union for two and a half years, actually less than that because it collapsed while I was there and spent a, a very large number of, amount of time in the first 10 years of the century visiting the People's Republic of China. And I had formed during those times a very strong view that we had a very precious possession in this country, uh, which was our freedom to do precisely the sort of things which we were being banned from doing. I also thought that there was another major difficulty with what the government was proposing, which was a simple question of proportion. It was quite plain that there was an outbreak of disease and it was quite plain that it was very serious if you got it. Uh, that much we knew from the start. What wasn't plain was that the extraordinary unprecedented action of closing down society and of, of quarantining the healthy, something never previously attempted by any civilization, was out of proportion to the danger. Uh, the, the other thing which I very rapidly became aware of was that if you voiced any criticism of this, you didn't receive a rational answer by people saying, well, yes, that's interesting, let's discuss that. What he received was an answer saying, how dare you even raise this? It's not something which is really proper for you to, to raise. This is so serious. People are dying. Uh, look at the pictures on television from Italy. How can you be so responsible as to raise questions about what's going on? And I felt from the beginning that what was at issue fundamentally was freedom. And although there were many other issues, the medical issues, the, the social issues, the health service issues, the economic issues, that became more and more vital in any understanding of what was going on. And the longer I actually stood out against this, the more strongly I felt it. In fact, I was astonished at the beginning uh, that so many people in my trade, uh, the trade of journalism, which is supposed to have the 
same relation to government as a doghouse or a lamppost, which is supposed to believe that everything should be questioned, whose motto is supposed to be never believe anything until it's been officially denied, and whose whose basic code is the, the ABC of journalism, assume nothing, believe nobody, check everything, was just being flung aside in a general assumption that what the government was saying was necessarily right, axiomatically right because they said it, and that criticism of it or questioning of it was actually morally wrong and would endanger people. I began to get uh, screamed at on social media by various persons claiming that I was killing my own readers by raising these questions. And I'm afraid because of the nature of the sort of person I am, my response to this was actually to, to feel that I was probably onto something. When people start trying to accuse you of guilt by association claims to mix you up with, uh, with, with, with conspiracy theory lunatics, which I am not, uh, to tell me that uh, what I was doing was damaging the national interest. I felt, well, that is exactly what happens to anybody who dissents from any dogma and it doesn't actually amount to an argument. I was perfectly willing to argue about this with anybody. I was also repeatedly told, you're not an expert. Well, I said, of course I'm not an expert. I'm a journalist. Journalists are not experts. Journalists know a great, know very little about a great deal. Experts know a great deal about very little. But on the other hand, journalists have an independence from establishments, uh, which enables them to question. And what is much more important than this argument, I, I was consulting the works of experts, such as Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University and Professor Sutrid Bakhti of the University of Mainz and Professor Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University and the distinguished mythologist Dr. John Lee, all of whom were raising from their positions of considerable expertise grave doubts about whether this policy was sensible. And what I noticed about them was that they, what they said was marginalized. However important it might be, however well argued it might be, however factually based it might be, it was marginalized. I don't know, this is, this is a, a side issue to the main one, and, and I willingly concede that, but it, it, is, it has to me been very important because it seems to tell me so much about it. The issue of wearing face coverings, uh, which was first of all pretty much dismissed by Her Majesty's government in quite a lot of documents in which she said it wouldn't really do very much good, suddenly became, uh, round about the end of June, a, an urgent need. Uh, and the, the tone of the World Health Organization, which had also been skeptical about these face coverings, changed. Uh, very interestingly, it changed in such a way that uh, the, the medical correspondent of the BBC Newsnight program, a, a very good correspondent called Deborah Cohen, who probably doesn't agree with me about anything, made checks with her contacts at the WHO and, and confirmed that the decision to change WHO advice on face coverings had been made on political grounds, not on the on the advice of medical experts. And I felt that there was something very peculiar going on here. And when, when uh, an actual, because partly because there was so little hard experimental knowledge of the effectiveness of face coverings. And then when in the, the early summer, the, a group of Danish academics launched a randomized controlled trial of the use of face masks, which is known as the Dan Mask 19 study. Several very peculiar things happened. First of all, it, it was leaked from the study and it, to a major Danish newspaper that it had been unable to find a publisher, that the major three, as it turned out, major medical publishers of, of important journals had declined to publish the outcome. Uh, then a fourth journal eventually agreed to publish it, and we now know that it published it under certain conditions, though we don't know what those conditions were, and it makes me wonder whether the actual report was significantly different from the one which was published. 
And here's the other absolutely astonishing thing. What it showed after a, a randomized control survey involving almost 6,000 people was that there was no substantial difference in outcome in terms of infection between those who wore face coverings and those who did not. What do you think this would at least at a time when face coverings were such an issue and millions, tens of hundreds of millions of people were wearing them? Well, this might be interesting to the media of the countries in which the, the face masks were being worn. But as it happened, the British media almost entirely failed to publish the outcome of this study uh, because it didn't actually support the idea that they should be made compulsory. I'm perfectly happy if anyone wants to wear a face mask. That's their business for me. And I, I don't uh, I would never criticize anyone for doing so if they think it's worthwhile. Good for them. But what I was worried about was compulsion. I was also worried about evidence. And here was an incident in which evidence had been gathered at the highest possible level of scientific experimentation, which is the randomized controlled trial. It had, it had come up with an answer which it did not support uh, the idea that the that face masks made a significant difference in transmission of the disease. It didn't study the issue of whether they protected the the, uh, the non-wearer from the wearer, which is, 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 is slightly different, but it strikes me that if a mask doesn't protect the wearer from being infected, it seems it's quite uh, unlikely that it's going to protect anybody else either. But <coughs> leave that aside, it was the failure of every major outlet in British newspapers and broadcasting, except my own newspaper, which reported it, uh, to actually even say this has happened, uh, that suggested to me that something very odd was going on, that there was a kind of revulsion against dissent. Uh, which people were, were unwilling or afraid or whatever it was to actually report on things which didn't fit in with the general narrative. And I found this uh, worrying. And then I started personally being attacked uh, by people who suggested that my opposition was causing deaths. And this became quite intense. And more and more, it seemed to me that what was going on here, and this was not, I don't believe there's any plan in this, because I don't, uh, but that an opportunity had arisen uh, to create a different kind of society from the one that we have. One in which the government took on much more responsibility for our lives than it previously had done. Now, C.S. Lewis once said that the most terrifying kind of despotism was one which was run by benevolent despots because they never give up. Uh, the, they, they so strongly believe that what they're doing is good uh, that they interfere in every aspect of your lives. And what I been writing about and thinking about for many years since I published my first book, The Abolition of Britain in 1999, was that many of the institutions and habits which have supported what I'd grown up to believe was British freedom uh, were declining. And I then wrote a second book, The Abolition of Liberty, published in 2004, in which I went into this in detail, the changes in the police force and the courts, the weakening of jury trial and the practical presumption of innocence, and the general turning away from the idea that freedom was actually a, a supreme value uh, and, and towards the idea, especially after September the 11th, 2001 and the massacres in Manhattan, uh, that we had to sub actually put freedom second and security first, that there was a general move in our society away from those ideas which I associate with Protestant Christianity, that is, of freedom of speech, thought, an assembly of adversarial parliaments, adversarial courts, presumption of innocence, all these things, towards a society which was run really in a utopian way, in which the government was assumed to be virtuous and criticism of it was assumed to be wrong. And I was experiencing this in real time in person. 
And I felt actually, uh, I, I, I came slowly to this conclusion that, that although the, the, the issue that was being discussed was the issue of disease and how to protect against it, and I absolutely stress here that I'm greatly in favor of protecting people against disease and that I take the disease extremely seriously and I, I'm as grieved as anybody else by unnecessary death. But the, this, was, this was being used, I say used, it was, it was, it was turning out uh, to create a society in which government had far more power than it used to have and the individual had far less power than he or she used to have. And I wasn't sure that this was justified by the events, and I'm still not. And I'm very worried that when this is over, if it ever is over, which I suppose it eventually must be, that we'll be left in our country with a society which has turned away in significant fashion from what it previously believed in, in terms of, of both personal liberty. And this is quite crucial in terms of having an adversarial parliament. Now, many years ago, in the 1960s, Michael Richard Neville, who was editor of an underground magazine called Oz, which became quite notorious. So a very clever thing. He said, and this was true at that time, there is an inch of difference between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. Uh, but it is in that inch that we all live. And it, it was true of Britain at that time and for, for many years afterwards, that because we had an adversarial parliament in which we had two parties which were opposed to each other and were constantly jostling for 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 the the, uh, the ability to to run the country but because we had that system it kept alive a genuine level of freedom but once you get a total agreement at the top of society about what is good about what's best for britain then that inch disappears and in my view it is disappearing very fast and of all the things and there are many many things which we can draw from these events that is the one which may well be the most lasting effect that we are less free than we were before, that we are now living in a sort of new Jerusalem in which we have benevolent rulers who think that everything they do is justified by their ability to keep us from harm. And that this, although it may seem appealing, uh, will turn out to be a retrograde step which will do quite a lot of damage to the society in which we live. And that's pretty much my point of view. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Peter. Um, there's a lot in there, I suppose, when it comes to this issue of, of coronavirus. There's many aspects of it and uh, we've already got a lot of questions piling in, so I'm sure we'll be able to address um, hopefully as many of these points as possible throughout the question and answer session. Um, just for those uh, who aren't aware yet, uh, we can now commence question and answer. So again, up in the top right, um, there should be a an option to post your questions. Um, to get us kicked off then, I suppose, with the first question for you. Um, you've addressed, I suppose, the motivation from the government's point of view a little bit in your talk, but um, in, in previous interviews and a little bit tonight, you suggest that there's um, reasonably clear scientific data to support the claims that you can make about lockdown, as well as about um, face coverings uh, and that this this is open to the public it, it's open to the government and it's open to the scientific community as well and um, can i can i make so a point here it's I want important them. yes i don't make any claims uh, i absolutely don't it's it, i'm not proposing legislation i'm not proposing to prevent people from going <laughs> to work i'm not proposing to keep people at home i have no policy at all I, if i if i'm asked what policy i would have followed, I would point 
in two general directions, that of Sweden, which has interfered much less with the lives of its people and has had an outcome which is not significantly different from ours, and that of the 2011 plan which the government itself produced uh, for a pandemic, uh, which I have been publicizing in my column and on Twitter and giving links to for the, for the past several days. It, it, this, this plan was made after the H1N1 outbreak in the Far East, and it's a serious 70-page plan for a major country to deal with an, an outbreak of, an, of a previously unknown disease. And it seems to me to be in tune with everything that was precedented before uh, the quarantining of the sick rather than the quarantining of the healthy, uh, particularly, uh, and, uh, and taking measures which were far more proportionate to the problem than the ones I believe we've taken. I don't, I don't claim to know uh, for instance, I, I wouldn't say I would say lockdowns don't work. I would say that the the evidence that they do remains extremely sketchy. I don't mm. say that masks don't work. I say that the evidence that they do remains extremely sketchy. And, and, and if you want to compel people, as the uh, as both as as all the UK governments have been doing in various degrees, if you want to compel people to wear face coverings, if you want to compel people to stay at home. If you want to prevent them from working, if you want to shut down their businesses, it seems to me you need to be able to establish pretty much beyond doubt that what what you're doing is justified. And as I say, I think there are significant uh, numbers of experts who question uh, the effectiveness of these policies uh, to make that rather difficult to do. But the thing is that there has been a unanimity in Parliament, particularly where there's in the United Kingdom, and I think it would also be true to say in Scotland, uh, there's been more or less a unanimity. Uh, the official opposition in in England uh, and in the United Kingdom Parliament has more or less ceased to function. Uh, the media, which is supposed to be diverse and critical, has almost entirely ceased to be so. Uh, the judiciary, which is supposed to hold the government to account and, and suggest that it's, it's not necessarily keeping to its own laws, has failed utterly uh, to deal with, uh, with attempts to bring the case before the courts. And the academy has been largely silent, uh, but there have been there have been attempts, and one thinks particularly of the Great Barrington Declaration made by a number of distinguished scientists, and many other contributions which have slipped into the various parts of the media uh, that, that suggest this is wrong. But they've never cohered uh, into an opposition large enough to create that inch in which true debate can happen and, and in which uh, a free discussion of what's going on. Can happen. I, but please don't attribute to me any claim uh, that I know. What I'm suggesting is that the government mm -hmm. and its supporters do not know as much as they claim they know that there is considerable doubt about the the basis for what they've done, particularly given the huge and I I, I should have mentioned the huge economic impact of this uh, and the huge impact on this the huge uh, the, the huge impact on on the health service. Uh, of the measures taken, uh, people not uh, affected by COVID, people who are waiting for operations or should have been treated for heart disease or strokes or the symptoms of them and, and didn't uh, attend for treatment, uh, operations postponed, all the collateral damage, which we're only just beginning to, to, to measure. And these Im immense things uh, which have been going on and the other, the other terrible outcome, I think, which Professor Sutrid Bhakti particularly warned against in the beginning, the grave interruption of the healthy lives of the healthy old, uh, who've been deprived both of exercise and of society, of the comfort of their families, uh, of, all the, of all the activities and entertainments which kept them happy and healthy. And the damage done 
to that sector of society is almost incalculable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think the evidence has been produced which justifies the stringency of these actions. So I, I suppose there are two questions there that sort of following up from that. The first, the first thing that I wanted to uh, address with you is what exactly you think the motivation from the government was then, given the consequences that seem quite clear economically, the pressure on the NHS and socially as well, um, where the motivation lies, because you, you addressed this issue of uh, benevolence, I suppose, but um, from, from your point of view, what motivates the government then when, as well as you say, there was a there was a plan laid out beforehand before COVID-19, how to address a pandemic. Where, where lies, where is the motivation from the government to impose these sorts of restrictions that are doing so? Well, I think the government's motivation is good. I can't, um, I, I'm not one of those people who assumes that my parents are bad people. I think they were attempting by what they did to, to as they said, you know, to lessen initially the, the pressure on the National Health Service and to save lives. Uh, I, I would say I think they might have been badly advised. Uh, I think, again, the advisors who advised them were not themselves bad people uh, with wicked intentions. They were just people who had, uh, had uh, in, in my view, possibly made a wrong estimation of the level of danger. Mm-hmm. There was uh, What happened was the, the advice was bad and the government itself made up of people who were as inexpert as I am. Uh, which seems to me, to, I mean, people complain that I'm not an expert like in this debate. Well, OK, I, I have no power, uh, but the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Health are not experts either, and yet no one seems to be particularly worried about that. I think they panicked. Uh, I think they right. panicked, particularly when the, there was an awful lot of reporting from Italy suggesting that the disease had got seriously out of control, and they feared that this would happen here, and they thought that they would be blamed for it. And I spent a lot of my time uh, in my, I was for, for quite a while a, a lobby correspondent at Westminster. I have met politicians. I know what manner of people they are and that they're actually wholly human. And that in many cases, they're not particularly especially intelligent. And I think that what happened was panic. And that once you've panicked, it's very, very hard to admit that you've panicked. And the simplest thing to do when you've taken a serious wrong turning is not to admit it, but to carry on driving in the same direction and hope it will turn out all right. And I believe that's what the government's been doing. Most of us have probably been in a car driven by somebody who's made a mistake and who's not willing to admit it and who drives on and on. Not, the one thing he will not do is turn back. And I think that's what we've got. But I don't attribute any other motive as to what's going on. Uh, but I think panic is a very strong force in, in, in life and in politics. People fear to be, that they'll be held to account for things that they've done. And they've given a responsibility of this kind. They fear that they'll be blamed for loss of life. And, and that's, I think, what happened. And it continues to happen. OK. So... Um, from this point, uh, after um, sort of in the timeline of coronavirus and the pandemic, do you suggest then that the, the burden of proof is on the government if they they maintain to continue with these restrictions? Then they must prove um, the effectiveness of the restrictions that they're imposing. Well, I, yes, I do. And I, but I, what I also think is they should be challenged more on, on, on the actual justification of what they're doing. But the, the, the fundamental question remains the question of proportion. Now, the metaphor which I came up for this from the beginning is that the government has been like a man who learns that he has a wasp's nest in his house, burns down his house to get rid of the wasp's nest. 
And this is a, a completely disproportionate action to, to deal with it, just as the, the closing down of the country, the strangling of the economy and society has been disproportionate to dealing with the coronavirus. Whenever I say this, somebody will say, oh, don't you care about all the people who are dying? Well, of course I do. Uh, but I'm by no means convinced uh, that the methods which have been adopted have saved lives any more than, than following, say, the 2011 plan would have done uh, or following a Swedish uh, plan would have done. What's very interesting about, uh, about looking at as many people have done, and there are a lot of papers about this, uh, looking at what's happened all over the world, is that there is no obvious correlation between the stringency of lockdowns and the number of deaths. Uh, far from it. They vary considerably. And in, you take, for instance, Japan, uh, which has had a very low level of deaths and which is constitutionally forbidden from having the sort of lockdown which we've had. And is almost never included in, in considerations of this. And you take Peru, which has had a very severe lockdown and very high numbers of casualties. Uh, whereas, uh, and then you look at the European continent countries such as Belgium, and, uh, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic, which were initially congratulated for the success of their, of their tough measures, uh, have later turned out to have quite serious continued outbreaks. There is, as I say, no correlation. Without correlation, you certainly don't have causation. And it seems to me that the absolute assumption of so much discussion that closing down society is saving lives needs to be questioned. Apart from anything else, how much longer can this go on for? I, the, 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 I am not uh, an economist, but I know enough to know uh, that until very recently, almost everybody who's now spending billions of pounds, which they do not have, uh, was mocking Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, for claiming that we had a magic money tree, that uh, saying it was impossible to create money on this scale. Well, who was right? Uh, were they right in their previous incarnations when they were mocking Jeremy Corbyn, or are they right now when they're spending all this money that we don't have, which I believe is going to have to be taken from the future? Uh, and I, I, I just the, the lack of consideration of the economic cost of this is extraordinary to me because it, a, a, a broken economy is extremely bad for health and life. And if your concern is about health and life, then you really should be concerned about the possibility of a badly broken economy after this is over. So we have a question. Hello, I'm Andre, by the way. Uh, we have a question from Harry Glocker, Glockler, who's in Belgium, by the way, which is very exciting. And it's exactly following your notes on, on the economy. And he asks, Lockdown policies are delivering the worst economic depression in history, and this will certainly negatively affect working class people more than anyone else. Meanwhile, corporate profit is at an all time high. Mr. Hitchens, why do you think the left has not been more critical of lockdown? I'm baffled by it. As a former left wing person, I was a Trotskyist myself in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I am puzzled by many of the actions of the left. And it seems to me that they have, uh, it, it, the left has changed hugely in that time from being a body which more or less took the side of what was then the working class against uh, the ruling class and which was mainly had economic ambitions. The left has changed uh, since the, particularly since 1968 uh, into being a, a body which, which is in some ways returned to the the radicalism of the French Revolution. It's much more about culture and morals and religion uh, than it is about the economy. And I think that there is a, a perhaps a feeling among some of the left that they see 
in this the creation of benevolent despotism in a lot of countries which were previously uh, law-governed liberal democracies, uh, they see an opportunity for the expansion of the cultural and moral revolution, which has been gathering pace really ever since 1968 uh, through the long march through the institutions. I think it, it, is, it is quite evident that the left has changed fundamentally and the left often no longer opposes wars in the way that it would have done and no longer stands up for civil liberty in a way that it once would have done. So I, I suspect it's because the left has changed rather than because they haven't noticed and all the old categories uh, have really been set to one side and replaced with new ones. Okay, uh, we have another question here. This one's from from Emily. It's a little bit of a long one, so if you forgive me a second for reading this one out. Um, Emily's asking, uh, having been accosted and berated by a senior citizen today whilst in a shop on account of my lack of face covering, I feel at a complete loss as to how to defend myself. Whilst, uh, whilst I do have an exemption, I do not see that I should have to divulge this information. I've been chucked out of a Waitrose store for trying to make a complaint about their heavy handed approach to face coverings. Do we simply accept that uh, we have lost the ability, the right to complain about these policies or do we um, I suppose rage against uh, these policies. So I suppose the question there is asking you if you think that people should be um, sort of going against the government's rules on well, this one. No, I, there, there are quite lawful exemptions uh, and they're quite extensive uh, to the compulsory wearing of face coverings, uh, particularly in shops and on public transport. Um, but they're not um, they're not as widely known or as widely understood as they should be, but they do exist. And one of the problems is that neither shop staff uh, nor the public, nor in many cases the police, fully understand them. And those who want to take advantage of those exemptions, I think, are increasingly having to accept that, that there is this low level of understanding. I think the only thing to do is to be as polite as possible, uh, to offer to explain your position if, if you can. Uh, to avoid confrontation, uh, people. Uh, this is a country in which people have been frightened, and very effectively frightened, uh, by extremely pervasive, subtle, and relentless propaganda, into the belief that they are in grave danger from their fellow citizens. Uh, you, you, you have to sympathise with people who've been frightened in this way. Uh, even if you think that they're mistaken, you can't just brush aside the level of fear. They genuinely think that if they see a person in their supermarket who's not wearing a mask, that it threatens their life and health. Well, what can you do about this? Say, apart from, I might, my attitude towards this from the start has been, it's as if I lived in a country which has suddenly adopted a, a religion which I don't follow. Uh, I've been to countries which have religions which I don't follow. What I do there is I'm polite as I possibly can be. I, I make sure I don't offend against their principles and anything I do in, in public and, and, uh, and I step aside. If, even though people who are exempt don't have to show uh, any, sort of, uh, any sort of documentation and indeed it's not available, uh, I suppose that I mean, there are various um, bits of um, plastic and so forth which can be obtained which which state that the person involved is exempt. I, I think probably the sensible thing to do under those circumstances is to have such a, a thing and, and to show it in the hope that it placates the person. But if it doesn't, 
I would step back from confrontation. The last thing I want to do is, is to say that if, if people believe that masks protect them, is to discourage them from wearing them themselves. Uh, and if they really do feel that you're a danger to them, then step aside, let it go by, and return at some other occasion when this is going to happen. I, I really, I don't see any point uh, in people who disagree with this, who are, are regressively are a small minority uh, getting involved in any kind of battles over this because you won't win. Uh, you'll only hurt your position if you do. It's, I regret having to say this. I wish it were not so, but I, I don't think I can offer any other sensible advice uh, which people can reasonably be expected to take. And I, I say I, I'm reluctant to say it, but I, I really don't think there's any other civilized response to make. And I say I wish it weren't so, but it is. Just on that point before we move on to the next question I suppose would you suggest then that the action people should take should be political as in contacting members of parliament contacting uh, members of the government and, and voicing their concerns then sort of taking it directly to them well I very much said that that people should remain lawful and constitutional because I, anybody who's freedom has to do that. The rule of law is, is absolutely one of the things I have learned beyond that from my widespread travels, I think to 57 different countries is the most precious thing is liberty and the rule of law. And so it's absolutely wrong for anyone to suggest any sort of disobedience or, 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 or any sort of uh, illegal action against us, you completely must abide by the law and it's vital that people do so however strongly they oppose it. And which is why I have said that people should indeed write to the members of Parliament. And everyone said, well, that's pretty feeble. I said, well, I'm sorry it's so feeble, but it's, it is what there is. And if you don't do it, then you've, you've failed to do your duty. If you do do it, then you, you have. And if it hasn't worked, uh, then what we mainly have to concern ourselves with now, because I believe my side has lost uh, almost totally uh, not the argument, but the struggle for um, to be heard in this first stage is to make sure that when this is over, if it ever is over, and we can discuss it, uh, that we return to the fight with as much reason and as much fact as we can to make the point that the mistake has been made and to try and prevent it from happening again. And there is a difficulty here. Governments learned one very important thing from the Iraq war and the weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist. They didn't learn that they shouldn't go to war or indeed take any action on the basis of false information. What they learned was to was was never to admit that they were wrong. Uh, if if the if, if the Iraq War were repeated now, uh, those who uh, who pointed out that there were no weapons of mass destruction uh, would be denounced as Saddam Hussein sympathisers and WMD deniers, and would be marginalised. And the, the the governments of of Britain and the United States would not admit, as they did in 2003, 2004, that they had actually gone to war on a false prospectus. Uh, they would turn on those who pointed it out. And that is the, the, the terrible thing. Governments have learned uh, to deal with important dissent uh, by the use of these techniques. And it's very distressing, but it's, uh, I, it's, this, it's not just in this issue that it's apparent. I've been involved, this is marginal to this discussion, but it's, it's important to the, my point. I've been involved in looking into the very curious uh, events at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons over allegations of the use of chemical weapons in Syria. 
and discovered some very alarming things. And the response has not been, oh, well, thank you very much for pointing out that this has plainly gone wrong, uh, but personal attacks on me and claims completely false that I'm a uh, supporter or apologist for the appalling regime in Syria, uh, or that I'm a war crimes tonight. And it's opened my eyes to the, the propaganda techniques which can, can now be used and are now used against dissent. Um, I have a very uh, quick, but I think it's a, a very important question to ask. Given your position on, on mandatory masks uh, and being opposed to them, what's your view on mandatory vaccines or vaccine passports, as some have hinted at recently? Well, I, I, I'm against mandatory medical treatment. I think it's contrary to the Hippocratic Oath and indeed to, um, to, to the post-Nuremberg post international law. I think that, that if you can't encourage people uh, by normal means to, uh, to accept medical treatment, then, then you, you shouldn't resort to compulsion. I mean, if you had an absolute emergency like a return of bubonic plague, I'd be prepared to consider the possibility of compulsion if people were genuinely refusing to be inoculated against it. Uh, but I, I, I think that it's perfectly possible to persuade people uh, rationally to, 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 to have vaccinations. And I would be very worried by a society in which it became compulsory. The problem with this is uh, that actual straightforward, explicit compulsion uh, will probably not be used. What will happen is that it will just be much more difficult uh, in society for people who have not been inoculated. Uh, to travel and to, uh, to, to, uh, to maybe obtain in some countries social benefits, uh, education for their children. Uh, that's a much more difficult area. And I'm, I'm dubious about it. I, I think yeah, I, I would much prefer it if we lived in a country where people could, had to be persuaded rather than compelled. But again, in this kind of society which we are increasingly accepting, uh, compulsion seems to be becoming popular. And those of us who oppose it may find ourselves being brushed aside as uh, deniers and, and nuisances and whatever else it may be, uh, preventing the health of the people. But in general, I, I find the whole idea of compulsory anything uh, really um, inimical to my idea of what a free society should be about. Can I uh, just quickly ask, um, because that's a question that seems to be uh, popular in the chat. Um, how can we help give people who have wholeheartedly bought into the various lockdown measures an easy way out? Well, I think the, I think the vaccine, which has undoubtedly been extremely successful in terms of its development and its uh, distribution, ought to be the way out. And I think a lot of people thought that once it had been distributed, to most of those who are most vulnerable, as I believe it has been now, that we will begin to see relaxation. And I'm, I, the, the odd thing is this doesn't really seem to be happening. But I think that was and remains to me the obvious way out for everybody, because if the, if the whole thing is based upon fear, which it is, then surely the existence of a widespread successful vaccine against it casts out that fear and makes it possible to live normally again. Uh, I'm, again, I'm still slightly surprised that there hasn't been more, more 
of a reaction by people saying, OK, now we've had the vaccines, particularly in the United Kingdom, now we've had the vaccine, it's been given to the most vulnerable, can't we begin to be... But then again, if you've made people this frightened, I, again, I, for me personally, if, the, if it all ended tomorrow, I would be nothing but relieved. But I understand, uh, because I know people, people who I respect and like, who are genuinely afraid of this. I know that, it, that there will have to be a lot of coaxing to get people back to normality. Uh, because they they simply can't, having been so scared, they can't immediately slip back into a way of life in which they no longer are. And I sympathize with that. I say that these, the people who disagree with me are not my enemies. Uh, I, I, I quite understand what it is that's, that, that, that makes them this worried. I, I wish they weren't, but I understand it. I, and, I, I, and therefore, I'm utterly sympathetic to any means which could be used to persuade people back to normality. But I, I say I would have thought the vaccine would be one such way, and I've been slightly disappointed at how little effect it's had so far. But maybe uh, once it gets into the second uh, the second injection and, and, and this begins to become plain that more and more people are actually immune from it and are not spreading it, that this will happen. I, one can only hope. This, this issue then of... of um of the fear that people have of this uh, virus, um, like you say, suggests sort of a time frame, and it might take people um, some time to recover from this fear. Um, we have uh, Derek, Derek Gardner asking you, um, does Mr Hitchens think we will ever be free from the culture around masks and social distancing, or will it persist for years to come? It, it, the problem is that here we are stuck in this time uh, knowing the little that we know about the future. I could say anything really in response to that. Uh, I remember uh, in the years immediately before the collapse of the Soviet Union how impossible it seemed that the, the Soviet Empire would ever disappear and yet how quickly it crumbled into dust when it did. And so I'm hesitant, uh, although it, it worries me, I'm hesitant to say that we've we've lost these freedoms forever and we're going to have permanently to live with this sort of restriction or something like it in our lives. But I, I, I won't say that because what would be the point? I don't know it to be true. I'd hate it to be true. I think I, I, I really do hope that people will uh, cast all this stuff off when it's no longer necessary. There was an extraordinary event after the Second World War. During the Second World War, as you probably know, identity cards were issued in the United Kingdom. Uh, they were almost completely purposeless and, 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 and served no good use at all. Uh, and it, but the government promised, the, the, the Tory government, which was elected in 1951, promised to get rid of them and then didn't. And then there was a court case over somebody who was being messed around by the police for not having an identity card. And uh, that uh, the judge, Lord Goddard, of all people, had, a terrific reactionary judge say well, these things are nonsensical and they should be stopped and at that point the government said all right we will get rid of them they got rid of them and there was a great wave of joy there were people ripping them up and throwing them away mm -hmm. uh, they were sick of it it just represented to them years and years and years of privation busybodies nosy parkers and uh, and rationing and everything else they wanted to be shot of it and maybe uh, once all this is over, people will feel the same way and it will all go and we will we will enter a new era of freedom. Gosh, I hope so. I shall certainly argue for it. 
Um, I've got a, here a question from Dylan McGowan. Uh, he asks, entertainment and politics in today's day and age are inherently intertwined with one another. In saying that the objective of the journalist has shifted from being inquisitive towards authority and power to pushing an issue that cannot be questioned and staying with the moral guidelines that I believe social media has created, which leads to particular groups of people to believe their views are both objectively correct as well as morally superior. It creates a new class of people that are not equipped to engage in confrontation. So when they are put into these kinds of situations, their only option are, uh, is to turn up uh, turn to a joke or to try and cancel someone who may fundamentally agree with you. Um, they're only more skeptical. Uh, my question to you is, do you believe that social media has killed the modern debate and does the government play into this? It hasn't killed it. It has made it more difficult. A lot of things made it more difficult. And for instance, in this country, what we had uh, when I was growing up was a considerable variety uh, of disparate newspapers which disagreed with each other. These were the main media through which people got their news and opinions. And they genuinely kept debate alive and kept that gap uh, open in which debate could happen. Alas, for many reasons, newspapers, both local and national, have shrunk enormously in importance. And there is, in electronic media, in my view, a very strong tendency towards conformism. Uh, television imposes conformist ideas of what is funny and what is not, what, uh, what is fashionable, what is not. And electronic media, uh, in, in, in particularly um, social media, uh, enforce such things even more strongly. But there is room on social media for debate if it's permitted. Uh, what I have found slightly disturbing have been episodes, some of which I've been concerned, in which uh, YouTube and Facebook particularly have acted to tell certain people that they're, they're not entitled to, to set out their views on their platforms. And I think that that's that really does need to be tackled. And I probably, I, the government is probably the only force which can do it to say to these people that they have really do have to respect uh, the basic laws of freedom of speech, uh, probably as best summed up in the, in the, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, uh, which allows pretty much everything to be said if it's not, if it's not incitement to violence or in, in some other way dangerous. So I think that, yeah, social media has has had some baleful effects, but it isn't by any means the only reason why debate is narrow. The other big difference is that the two major political parties, both in Britain and the United States, and I believe in several European continental countries, either have grown much more close together in the past 30 years. They've, they've more or less adopted what I regard as Euro-communist ideology of egalitarianism, and there's very little to separate them. And that, again, the inch of which I spoke earlier, the Richard Neville inch in which we live, has closed. So it wouldn't be surprising, would it, if there was less debate? But I think it would be oversimplifying matters to say social media were the only reason for it. So uh, we have another question. It, it sort of um, jumps topic a little bit, but. I think it's still interesting worth asking. Um, this is from an anonymous uh, questioner. Unfortunately, we don't have the name. 
they're asking, um, uh, why do you think it's the case that some decisions such as lockdown, mask wearing, etc., have been decided upon so quickly when the efficacy of these interventions was not fully known, when simultaneously there was such a poor effort to investigate, um, I suppose, other forms of treatment um, when arguably there was uh, evidence to suggest that there were other ways of treating these measures? I don't know. There's a very interesting interview which was given by Professor Neil Ferguson, the, the, the famous modeler. Uh, so the Times published on 26th December last year, um, Boxing Day, uh, in which he speculated about this. And I think that there was a great, um, a great temptation, which was, which always lies before politicians who have much more power, even in free democracies than we think they have, uh, to use the big stick and to use, uh, I won't say dictatorial, but to use um, very, very strong state Napoleonic methods. And at the point where the, the, the tragic events in Italy were featuring on every television news person, I think there was a, a temptation Chinese approach uh, to say because the Chinese approach appeared to be working. Well, I don't actually think that you could trust any Chinese statistic or any Chinese news report. But if you if you felt here is a, a huge issue of life and death on which I have to take a, a decision which is lasting and which may cost or save many lives, and you look around you, the temptation to to reach for the strongest available weapon must be strong. And I do think that's what happened. And I read the read the, the new focus interview. I think most of it is, is, is now reasonably available on, on the web and the crucial part is available. And you'll see that the thinking which is going to be able to here it is. Uh, we would never have thought that this could be attempted in a free country before. But having seen what's going on, is, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to argue what's going on because it's, there's, there's, there's no point at the stage to argue such things. Having seen what, what was being reported from Italy, the, the, the temptation uh, to reach, as I say, for the strongest, the heaviest, the biggest stick was there. And I think once once it's been adopted and once people have said, oh, well, rather than saying, oh, how dare you try and uh, bludgeon our free society into this level of submission, once you, the response you get from the public is, oh, thank you, sir, for taking a strong stand. Please, please be as tough as you like, which was pretty much the response of the Western public. Once you've got that, then you're probably going to continue, aren't you? It's all the explanation I can come up with, uh, and it's the best I can do, I'm afraid. Um, we have a question from Ria. I think that's how uh, their name is said. Uh, what do you think of an opinion that by complying with mask main mandate, you are part of the problem and perpetuating the propagated narrative and supporting the government's poor decisions? Oh, well, I think that there is a, a the, the, the wearing of a face covering is a very interesting act. And I think that it it has, as I've written, the, the effect of, of, of partly cancelling the person involved. Uh, there's something submissive about it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if you believe, as so many do, that by doing so, the, 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 because the official position is not that you're 
protecting yourself by doing this, you're protecting other people, uh, then that is probably your prime motive. And I am not going to get involved in the criticism of people who believe that by wearing masks, they're doing good. If that's what they believe and that's why they're doing it, then, then let them be. Uh, I disagree with them, but I'm not, I don't upbraid them in the street for doing it. Uh, I don't urge that they shouldn't do it. On the contrary, I very much say if people want, if, if people wish to abide by these things, then, then please do. And I don't oppose any of the measures which the government has itself imposed uh, or urge resistance to or, or, or breach of them. Uh, that's not my business. Uh, I have to start, as I believe the government should start as well, as everybody, every serious person starts any, any argument uh, from the position that I might be wrong. And if I might be wrong, then it'd be wholly irresponsible for me to do any of those things and I, I won't do it. So I won't attack people for wearing masks. Uh, it's not, uh, the, the, the government has placed an enormous amount of pressure on them. There are very heavy fines in some cases for not doing it. And there's great, very strong social pressure. So uh, absolutely, I won't, I won't head down that particular twisting lane. So, um, as you've as you've sort of pointed out, um, you you start from the point of view that you might be wrong, um, and uh, quite a lot of the questions that we've been receiving tonight have sort of come from the same perspective of you. They might be a little bit skeptical of lockdown um, policies or any of the things that have been mandated towards us. Um, and that might just be by the nature of inviting you on people who are interested in yeah. your point of view and agree with you. Um, I'm just wondering, um, are there any arguments then that uh, you hear from the other side of the debate that you think are particularly compelling that through this process, the several past months, nearly a year now, that you've that have had the ability to shake your faith in your arguments? The odd thing is, listen, I, I hear very few such arguments. When I put forward the, the points that I've made, that the, the case for the efficaciousness of lockdowns, the case for the efficaciousness of mask wearing has not been properly made. If I suggest, as, as I do, that it, it's possible that we are, uh, that our statistical records of the, of the cause of death, uh, of, of, of excess death over the past 11 months, maybe open to question. I don't tend to receive, for the most part, rational responses saying, no, no, no you have this wrong, uh, let me explain, uh, You, it's like this. What I tend to receive is abuse. Uh, and on some occasions I receive uh, worse than abuse, I receive claims that by the action of dissenting, I have myself endangered the lives of, of others who have been influenced by me into taking actions which have led to their deaths. And I feel that I, that is not a proper response to what I, I've tried from the very beginning to be responsible and factual and rational. And I've tried to stay within the bounds of civilized debate. And I tend to feel that the weakness of the other side is demonstrated by its resort to these. I mean, I had recently, probably you're aware of it, a uh, debate with uh, D uh, Mr. Dan Hodges uh, on talk radio. And it, it's striking if you watch it, which you should, 
that what Mr. Hodges repeatedly does is he accuses me of being a denier, an expression which I believe is a dog whistle designed to smear the, the subject because the denier automatically makes anybody. I think what he also what, what he, he 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 also accused me of conspiracy theories and all kinds of other things, but he hardly at all in the course of quite a lengthy and well moderated discussion did he actually tackle any of the points that I was making, and I, th I find this over and over again uh, when I go on social media. The the people who attack me are completely unfamiliar with the actual arguments I've been putting forward. Uh, they're much more interested in accusing me of, of being a, a, a denier or stupid or of claiming expertise I don't possess uh, or of being responsible for the deaths of others. And I, I, I whenever I encounter uh, a, an argument in which my opponents resort to this sort of thing, I feel validated. I think, well, if this is the best I can do in response, then there must be something in what I say. It may be unreasonable, but I, I can't I can't say that I've heard very much. And remember, I'm up against something which has the whole force of government behind it. And the great majority of the of, of, the, of the media of my own country and of the academy. Uh, I have no resources but my own. Uh, I confess to being sometimes at sea. I mean, I'm not a statistician, for instance, and I, and I steer very hard away from any statistical debates if I can possibly avoid them because of that. Uh, but I you know I have I'm helped people come to my aid who are expert in these things. And, uh, and the, the, the deeper you go into this, the more this happens. And quite often the help that I get privately from people who get in touch with me and say, yes, this pursue this line tends to make me think that, yes, I am on to something. But what all I really have hoped to do is to uphold the standard of dissent in a free society, to say that dissent is justified and should be made. I don't, I, I don't, I'm sure I've made mistakes and I'm sure I haven't been right in everything that I've said, but I think I have been right to dissent and I think I've kept within the civilized rules of dissent while doing so. And I have yet to encounter in any of this uh, a, an opponent who has made me think that what I've done has been either morally or scientifically wrong. We have a question here uh, to which I can uh, sort of, of relate. Um, and it's someone who asks, do you think the number of deaths uh, which is uh, being revealed is inflated? Uh, I, I said that uh, I relate personally because I'm uh, from a very small island with 15,000 people with uh, very few cases of coronavirus. And, you know, every once in a while we see here and there some abnormalities, which I'm not saying it's the government faking numbers, but, you know, one thinks, one wonders. Uh, so do you think that the numbers are being faked? Oh, well, no, numbers are not being faked. And I, there's no doubt that large numbers of people died. Uh, but the question is the, the categorization and attribution of these deaths, which is much more complicated. And the and I, I return at every point when this comes up to, the, to what Dr. Jenny Harris, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England, has said more than once at government press conferences. There is a difference between deaths with and deaths from COVID. And there's also a very interesting uh, examination, which uh, I, I've done with the assistance of others, on the 
the way in which the World Health Organization advises the filling in of death certificates and the classification of COVID-19 as a notifiable disease by Her Majesty's government back in March, which I think may well have tended uh, towards the classification of more deaths uh, as being COVID linked uh, than might be correct. Uh, but it's almost impossible to establish. And Dr. John Lee, who I mentioned earlier, the distinguished pathologist, uh, thinks that the, the the way in which deaths are being recorded and have been recorded from the start in this is extremely suspect. And I think that that's a perfectly reasonable position, and I think it's open to inquiry. I think people should should be careful exactly what they what they conclude. But it's it would be completely wrong to say that deaths themselves have been falsified. And in fact, it would be wrong to say that these things have been falsified. I and mean, what what we have here is a culture in which it is believed. Uh, that the that COVID is the the major cause of death of large numbers of people, and people are being invited to certificate uh, deaths in which COVID is involved. So th there must be a tendency, therefore, uh, to err on the side of of COVID when making a classification. I, that's but people should be aware of this when studying these figures. And I, I, I can say no more because I don't have access to and couldn't possibly have access to the the. The facts and huge numbers of people have died without any possibility of an autopsy, for instance. So the, the final determination would be impossible to make now. Anyway, I have no access to, to, to any facts which would enable me to say anything other than that I think it's reasonable uh, to wonder about the exact meaning of the figures uh, and to, to suspect that it's possible that the the role of COVID in deaths has been overstated. There is a hideous truth which people have to understand: people die all the time in the United Kingdom, 1,600 people approximately die on average. And it's terribly sad for their relatives and families on every occasion. And it, but it, it is a fact, it happens and, and death comes. And we, we need to be careful not to, not to overstate the meaning of certain figures. Um, so the so I think this is the penultimate question we have for you, um, and it's maybe a little bit a cheeky, cheeky question from the audience, and so it's private, but it can be sort of more generalised, and so it's up to you how you wish to answer this one. They're asking um, uh, from anonymous, unfortunately, but they're asking, will you be taking the vaccine? Are you concerned about the reported side effects? Uh, and deaths reported following vaccination shown on the government's own website and those publicised uh, by from Israel by Alex uh, Berenson. But I suppose this also goes to, would you sort of recommend that people take the vaccination? Well, it's not really my business to tell, give people medical advice. Uh, it would be wrong for me to tell people to do anything medically. I'm not qualified to give anybody any sort of advice. Uh, I've had lots of vaccines in my time, uh, and I, I, I mean, a, a large part of me says, actually, this is private business, uh, and I, it really isn't anyone else's business whether I have a vaccine or not. But because any um, any refusal to answer would be taken as having meanings it didn't have, I, I, currently I'm expecting to get the vaccine. Uh, not with any great enthusiasm, but I, I wouldn't. It, it's 
uh, I've had lots of vaccines before. It wouldn't be a huge departure for me to, to, to do so. And it's plain, amongst other things, that uh, that having the vaccine is probably going to make life a good deal easier than if you don't. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I expect to have it. Um, I'm 69, so I'm not in the immediately urgent category, but I think I'd probably qualify for it fairly soon and I should decently uh, trudge along and do it. But I, I, I slightly resent being asked because I'm not, and I, I think if, 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 and I've had arguments with politicians about this before, if politicians are going around telling people to, uh, to have vaccines, then it seems to me to be quite clear that they should be clear about having themselves. I don't think I'm in quite that position. But on, on the other hand, as I say, because of any refusal to answer with misinterpreted, I feel I have to say, yep, okay. Uh, we but have. I, I resent the question a bit. Oh, our apologies then. No, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not unreasonable. I, I probably wrong to resent it. I just think you know that I tried. I, I try not to make a big deal about any any aspect of my personal life if I can possibly avoid it. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have reached, unfortunately, our last question to everyone who uh, whose question we didn't ask. We apologize, but we've had a lot of questions. Uh, and this is a, a, a question we ask as a free speech society uh, to every speaker. Uh, why is free speech important to you? It's the it's the furnace in which all ideas must be tested. Uh, there is no better, uh, there's no better way of learning than debate. Uh, there is no better way of discovering whether an idea stands up in practice than whether it can endure exposure to serious opposition. I've, I, I don't I, I think this is demonstrable. Uh, countries in which free speech and free thought are permitted are better governed. Uh, the countries which are not, they make fewer stupid mistakes. They, they foresee unintended consequences better. And I think they're happier places because, of, 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 apart from anything else, uh, free speech is enjoyable as well, and it gives people the opportunity to discover for things, uh, discover things they wouldn't otherwise learn. It it, 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 it has everything in its favour and nothing against it. Okay, thank you, thank you very much. There was a, a wonderful response, and that is unfortunately all the time we have. Um, all that remains is to thank Peter Hitchens for accepting our invitation to talk to us. I'm sure that every single person that came to this talk will feel that it was thoroughly, thoroughly worth their time. So thank you very much, Mr. Hitchens, for a great hour and uh, uh, a wee bit more um, of healthy exchange and debate of ideas. Finally, thank you very much to everyone that attended this event. It's absolutely amazing to see so many people interested in the Free Speech Society and our guests. Just a quick reminder that next week on Friday, we will be talking about the threat of China to Hong Kong's democracy with Joey Siu, a member of the Hong Kong Watch. Uh, tickets are free and are already on sale on Eventbrite. Uh, so just head to our Facebook page to acquire your tickets. Also, we are considering setting up a donation scheme to get a Zoom business account, which is a lot easier to work with than Teams. We haven't anything set up yet, but I'll let you consider. And if you decide that you want to donate, we will be posting details soon on our Facebook page. And just before I end this event, I would like to leave you with a thought. Uh, Noam Chomsky, the American philosopher, once said, if we don't believe in freedom of expression for people we despise, we don't believe it, believe in it at all. 
So let us believe in freedom of expression for people we despise. Let us believe in freedom of expression for people we love. Let us believe in freedom of expression for everyone, because a society where everyone is free to speak is a better society. Thank you so much for everyone for watching and have a good night.